Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Forward GC. Today we're bringing on Jordan Schwartz. Jordan is an attorney on law trades and runs his own firm. He previously served as general counsel of Meta, one of the earliest startups making augmented reality headsets, where he helped the company scale 10x and raise well over $100 million until it was acquired in 2018. We're recording this episode on May 19th, and just in April alone, the legal industry shed about 65,000 jobs. This episode will help those lawyers that are thinking of branching out and setting up their own shop, regardless of whatever practice area you serve. And since Jordan now regularly works with general counsels and served as one himself, he's going to offer his take on navigating the current challenges uh, legal departments are facing. Jordan, welcome to the pod. Hey, Ashish. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Likewise. So to get started, in a very short span of time, you've had the big law experience, the GC experience, and now you have a thriving law practice. How did this all happen? Can you walk us through what that journey was like after finishing law school? Yeah, so I think uh, like a lot of folks coming out of law school, you know, looked to cut my teeth in, in big law in, in New York. So I started out, fortunately, working with um, Jones Day there. Uh, this happened to be during the, the kind of Great Recession, so 2009, 10 and kind of the initial recovery years after that. So at that point, you know, there was a lot of kind of corporate finance, banking, regulatory work out there. But what was really interesting to me was there was a very rapidly changing um, legal landscape happening, obviously with the uh, Dodd-Frank legislation, various Fed rules, and, you know, all sorts of um, new laws and regulations that were coming into place. And I, I kind of quickly realized that the kind of model that the law firm had set up for itself, not just Jones in particular, but really, I think, applicable to most of big law, especially at that time, was, you know, becoming a bit antiquated for what clients were looking for. So very early on, you know, kind of just using a little bit of intuition from the earlier days of the internet, I saw a kind of opportunity, you know, to use technology to better service the clients. And so that, in that case, with kind of laws and regulations changing very rapidly, with many clients having different you know, questions and needs specific to their business, you know, I realized setting up some sort of online tools, a database, uh, more like a, a wiki or blog, specifically for kind of Dodd-Frank and Fred regulations at the time, as a, as a means to use technology in a way that kind of enables clients to, you know, be able to, you know, kept up on the latest, you know, on their own initiatives without necessarily having to, you know, dial into, a, you know, an apart- a partner's Right. Uh, you know, expensive phone line. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think that was probably the first instance where I realized that there was you know, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of low hanging fruit for how, you know, lawyers can be utilizing new technologies, and new realities to to better service clients uh, kind of all around. And, and quite frankly, to maybe, you know, and probably not in the interest of many of the big law firms, but, you know, maybe help reduce the the spend that clients do on the um, on the legal side, and so that that really uh, became apparent to me you know, early on when I was at Jones Day, but it hit home when I was uh, you know a few years later and had the opportunity to start as the first in-house lawyer at, at Meta, as you mentioned in the introduction. When you're the in-house counsel at a startup or really any company, you feel very invested in the team, and you know budgets are not unlimited, and as much as lawyers like to think highly of themselves. You know, in the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, we're you know kind of like finance, a lot of other roles. We are you know necessary um, you know operators for the business, and certainly can add value from time to time. You know, we're not necessarily the you know the magic bullet that's going to cause any startup to succeed. 
with that reality, you know, every every young company is going to struggle with the same questions around how do we allocate appropriate budget towards functions like legal, where you know where we're um, we're protected, we're securing the most important aspects of our business, but at the same time, we're freeing up as many resources as possible to actually push towards you know engineering and product uh, and, and growing the business uh, right. you know on the, on the top line, and so that really hit home to me the extreme need and the, the void that was kind of out there this is back in 2013 2014 2015 where you know the options for a lot of companies like the one that we were were working with the big law firms whether in New York or Silicon Valley you know they they do a good job of scooping up early business um, making their practice sound relevant and important to young founders who don't necessarily know any better but um, kind of coming into that situation, you see that, you know, those, those uh, bigger law firms, they're, they're, they're billing out, um, you know, young companies like they're billing out uh, their Fortune 500 companies. Right. And, and they're certainly not giving them the same level of attention because, let's be honest, uh, a company that's funded with 10 or $20 million of private capital is not necessarily going to generate the same business for a law firm that you know a multi-billion-dollar, um, you know, long-standing business will. So, right. not only are you getting billed out at exorbitant rates, but you're often getting fed. You know, your work is being fed to junior associates who have limited experience and and sometimes even need to have their work double-checked, kind of reducing further the the uh, the benefits um, of that model. So. You know, it was really a hit home for me, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners who themselves might have experienced uh, working in um, smaller private companies as in-house counsel will certainly agree with. Um, there, there was just a big void. And uh, it wasn't until I think, you know, companies like Law Street started popping up that enabled contract attorneys like myself to find a niche in that void, to try to provide the same level of service and, um, you know, expertise for the clients, but, you know, at, at a rate that was much more manageable given their budgets and also, you know, with an attentiveness that they knew that I, they know that I'm, you know, doing the work that they are, you know, are, are giving to me and my firm. Um, it's not necessarily being fed to, you know, our first or second year. So, you know, I think uh, in, in total, as we'll kind of get into more detail, you know, there are just a lot of economic efficiencies with how the law, the traditional law firm model, was established and how it evolved over the last half century. Like with a lot of industries, we're seeing young entrepreneurs figure out ways to disrupt that in a way that you know is more economically efficient for for everybody and and hopefully provides better service too. For sure, for sure, and that's a great take. One of our big bets is that practices like yours are really the future of the legal legal industry and will ultimately, you know, disrupt big law, whatever you want to call it, disruption, and traditional boutique firms to an extent. Uh, and to my understanding, you have no employees, you work from wherever you want. It's been, I think, what, a year into your practice so far? Um, under a year, yeah. And, yeah, so, so I'd love to get your two cents on how you're enjoying it, what are the perks, um, some of the challenges that you've had to overcome when getting started. Uh, I think that would be super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So it was definitely a change of pace, you know, having the, the big law background and then working in-house for, for five years. But, you know, I think being in-house also uh, helped train me to be more independent as an operational lawyer because even though I grew a small team while I was there, 
uh, at Meta. Um, the first couple of years, I was the only in-house attorney. And when you're in that situation, not unlike you know right now when you might be running a solo practice, you're you're kind of you know met with a, a host of different issues you have to have to address. You have to de- uh, develop different layers of expertise. Um, and very importantly, too, you have to develop ways of communicating with different types of clients. Um, sometimes not, you know, obviously not, you know, not always strictly legal uh, lawyer clients. It can be, um, you know, an engineer, a product person, etc. And so, those are all important skill sets that I think are not necessarily well honed, at least early on in a in a law firm. But once you work in house, you really start to develop. And now, as outside counsel, I'm kind of able to take that to teach my separate clients and sort of making that adjustment. You know, the biggest worry or concern initially was just how quickly, you know, we start to develop kind of a, a bench of clients, you know, a stable quality clients that you enjoy working with that are doing interesting things, but at the same time, you know, you're still running a business, you still need to, you know, make your ends meet at the end of the day. So trying to make sure that uh, you kind of have that, you know, both building that initial stable up and then maintaining it because the other thing too, um, as you know, where, you're dealing with any clients over an existing period of time is, you know, those relationships can change for reasons outside of your control. A client could be acquired, as we, we saw last week, or a client, you know, could go out of business in, in, in worse scenarios or or just some much more innocuously, uh, they could, you know, decide to hire uh, a full-time in-house, uh, you know, additional full-time in-house uh, counsel and kind of relieve some of the necessary work they need to kind of be farming outside. So those are all kind of the considerations, I think, but those are part and parcel with running a legal practice, not necessarily specific to being a solo practice, right. with the exception that obviously as a solo practitioner, you can't necessarily look to your partners um, to, you know, help uh, kind of fill any gaps or, you know, supplement any any work product you need. And so that's where I think partnering with companies like Law Trades that, you know, kind of take on a lot of that client relations side of the business, a lot of that kind of marketing and outreach side um, is extremely helpful. It kind of frees me up to focus on the legal work, which is where I kind of enjoy, you know, spending most of my time anyway. And, uh, but at the same time have, you know, a steady stream of interesting opportunities that can evaluate and, and continue to grow the business. Right. Right. And, and how would you say your previous roles set you up for what you have now? Like, I know you touched on it briefly. And aside from your skill set, why do you think you've been able to attract clients and, uh, more importantly, keep them around? Yeah, so I think uh, having a diversity of experiences and flexibility in terms of addressing legal matters is critical, especially when you're dealing with smaller clients that, you know, have one or two full-time in-house lawyers, which basically all my clients uh, do. So, you know, anyone in those situations, anyone who's been in those situations knows that you, you're going to come up, you know, you might, you might have spent your time at a law firm developing expertise in, in M&A or, or tax or whatever it might be. But uh, in a company, especially when you're the only in-house lawyer, but even on a small team, you're going to now have to address all sorts of issues related to, you know, commercial agreements, to, to IP, to, to, you know, to the fundraising, to just basic operations and HR issues that, you know, maybe a lot of lawyers, you know, didn't even think they would want to ever learn anything about or immigration right. matters. Uh, so having a diversity of experiences is extremely helpful because it, it both gets you caught up quite quickly 
on um, a variety of areas of law beyond whatever your core expertise is. It kind of gives you the confidence and kind of the, the reps of going through the motions with, you know, discrete um, types of agreements that you might not see a hundred of, but, you know, it's a kind of good background knowledge to have. And then as I alluded to before, the ability to kind of take that information and distill it for not just for your partner, as you might do at a law firm, or not just for your, your, you know, the client that your partner is, uh, has a relationship with, but, you know, with, with everyone throughout the organization from, from the secretary to the EA to the, junior software engineer and then up the chain of course to your mid-level managers your vps and your 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 uh, c-level uh suite so and of course ultimately to the board of directors as well and to shareholders so you have to hone not just your ability of being able to analyze uh, almost any issue under the sun but at the same time distill and communicate that to a variety of you know different personalities within any company um which is you know, which each, you know, each personality type or each role type is going to demand its own layer of kind of granularity or specificity or just language. Just, um, right. you know, when you're talking to a, a hardware engineering manager and they're dealing with a vendor in China, they're going to be using acronyms and terms that are not going to be familiar to someone who is, does privacy negotiations on behalf of an app, an, an app company in the U.S. So, you know, there's just like a kind of a nomenclature and an ability to understand where, you know, what the business needs are uh, in each area of the business that then kind of enables you and in, in my practice now, enables me and my practice now to take that on and be able to now work with a variety of clients from, you know, companies that are developing some, you know, new hardware technology or some app company or some SaaS company, you know, whatever it might be. Having had that kind of experience, uh, both in diversity of issues, but also communicating with different types of folks is extremely helpful. And I, I, maybe as you kind of grow up the chain in a, in a bigger law firm and you kind of spend some time as a partner, you can develop some of that too. But, you know, I'm just not quite sure you can ever get that kind of rapid fire experience, the, the breadth and the depth of it you know, as quickly as you can, if you kind of move in house. So right. I would say that's, that's the key uh, kind of enabling a lot of the, the growth in the practice. And then, um, you know, that, that in turn has enabled me to both kind of attract a diversity of clients. And I, you know, I, I assume that, you know, the, the quality of the work product, you know, combined with, you know, a personality that hopefully jives with, you know, what my clients are looking for from outside counsel, the combination of that seems to, I guess, work for them in a way that you know, they're happy to continue working with me. Right. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I'm just super curious as well, what's a typical day like for you now that you have your own practice? It's, you know, wake up in the morning, check emails. I mean, not, not too dissimilar from what I was uh, doing uh, as in-house counsel. Then, you know, you kind of have, you know, I kind of have my calendar set up, so to speak, where each of my clients will kind of notify me with their, their needs, either weekly or, or quite frankly, daily. I have a kind of a set allotment of time that I'll dedicate towards each client, uh, you know, in a given day or, or during the week. Um, but at the same time, I try to be responsive to where their business needs are because part of their value of, a, of working with a lawyer like myself is uh, expectation and, or, you know, a confidence that, uh, issues will get managed, not just competently, but, you know, pretty quickly, rather than, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with some big, you know, bigger law firms, you kind of just have to go with the flow of 
where where their client needs are. Um, and so, you know, I kind of have my my kind of schedule allotment, so to speak, based on, you know, my, my agreed upon terms with different clients. And I try to just stick to that and uh, build in a little bit of flexibility so that, you know, if a particular client has a, you know, urgent deal that might not have been, you know, quite what they were expecting, or it happens to be a, a time of year where the type, you know, where the demands of their business are much higher. So like, for example, um, you know, if you're selling a piece of hardware through retail, you know, normally around, you know, um, Black Friday and those type of big uh, holiday seasonal moments, you know, those are very important moments, lots of deals uh, happening around then. And so the expectation will be there. There's a lot more uptick and work at that point. So it's try to be upfront with the client at the kind of onset of the engagement and then maintain a level of communication and trust where, you know, we just have the same expectations around how much time they're expecting me to dedicate to them, how much time I can commit. And then uh, just, you know, communicating uh, as we, as we proceed, if, uh, if we think that's going to vary. So, you know, I, I said that word communicate a couple of times, but I think that's a very big part of it. And I alluded to the experiences back in, um, as a GC where, you know, you're communicating a lot with, with all aspects of the organization. And um, I think one of the biggest, you know, areas of advice I could probably give to uh, younger lawyers or lawyers thinking to strike out on their own is to, um, if they haven't already developed communication skills with clients, of course, uh, in particular, you know, try to put yourself in, in positions where you can do so because, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like everyday conversation and it's not necessarily like talking to your, your partner within the law firm, you know, as a junior associate, it's, it's going to be quite a bit different. Um, the, the types of answers they want are going to be different. The type of information, you know, and the way they want that information communicated is going to be different. And ultimately, as a lawyer, you're, you know, you're in a service industry. You're in a, a well-paid, you know, um, well-respected profession, but ultimately it is a service industry and you should, uh, you know, adjust and attune your, you know, your practice and in, in everything that goes into it to what better serves the client. For sure. And, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. And knowing what you know now after being in big law and being a GC and now running your own firm, what's your take on the future of the practice of law and what are some of the inefficiencies that you see being exploited um, how do you think the practice of the law changes, you know, over the next few years and, and you know, looking yeah. even further along? I mean, it's a, it's a very good question and, and one we've personally discussed <laughs> quite a bit and uh, continue thinking about more. I'll say one first caveat is is just it's going to vary from practice area to practice area. I mean, certain certain aspects of the law, like litigation, I don't necessarily see changing dramatically. Right. Um, certain specialties in law, like tax, you know, especially when you're dealing at the corporate tax level or, or M&A for that matter, um, you know, when you're dealing at the kind of corporate level. I don't necessarily see that being able to shift much, um, partially because of demands that those sort of bigger transactions or, or deals have. Meaning that you have to pull on, um, you know, more lawyers with you know, more of an expertise, and, and just you know, than just one or two people. Right. Uh, but also, there's obviously a pervasive CYA mentality within the culture, you know, within the corporate culture. So any company, you know, any any uh, GC of a company 
is not going to be able to justify having a solo practitioner manage a multi, you know, tens of billions of dollars a deal or whatever. Right. Um, you know, they're going to, well, they, you know, they're going to want to pay top dollar for, you know, whoever to handle it for Scadden to handle it. Because even if the deal goes awry, they'll, they'll point to, well, we, we paid the, paid the most, we bought, we bought the best firm and, you know, what else can I do? Right. <laughs> so, and obviously the, the exact opposite would be true if they went with, um, you know, a solo person and things went awry. So, yeah, so I think there are structural reasons why we won't see certain practice areas evolve tremendously. But I think certainly areas like when I'm kind of specializing in where it comes to commercial and product counsel is certainly ripe for it because a lot of, you know, what I'm working on and uh, what our client need, you know, what, what our clients need is, you know, often um, a kind of, overflow of work but one that's kind of more repeated kind of based on where where their business is the transactions and the negotiations you know individually are not necessarily you know huge or or, or you know going to make or break the business so there's kind of a, a reduced liability concern of course there mm-hmm. but you know more importantly they're they're not necessarily the types of transactions that are going to necessitate a heavy amount of uh, negotiating. I mean, certainly there will be isolated cases here and there, but for for the most part, you know, the, there's you know a level of kind of work within companies where it's not necessarily rocket science. It's really just about tailoring, you know, let's say a form agreement or a set of form agreements to what the client specific business is, uh, where their specific risks are, and then trying to manage both internally and with, with counterparties, you know, that kind of negotiation so that when you get to final execution, you're, you're not straying far from your initial starting place. Uh, and I think with those, you know, sorts of, um, you know, with, with that area of law, there is obviously a void because the, there is an economic inefficiency because the benefit of, of utilizing a top dollar law firm for that level of work is not really there because the value add that's a, that a law firm that can draw on, you know, the number of expert partners and that brings clout, you know, that doesn't really necessarily help you in a, in a day-to-day transaction. Sure. No counterpart is going to care that Skadden is negotiating some $100,000 deal across from them. Right. <laughs> um, and it's kind of overkill, right? So there, there's certainly a void there um, economically. And, you know, there, there are other practice areas, too, of course, beyond just kind of the commercial side. I think we're seeing on the IP front, you know, especially when it comes to patent portfolios and um, just maintaining trademark and copyright registrations. These are areas of the law where you need, uh, you know, competency and level of expertise, but you don't necessarily need to be spending top dollar uh, most of the time, at least, at least when it you know comes to kind of the day to day. And that's where... I mean, contract lawyers are, you know, fill a great void because we're, we're kind of able to be, you know, available and helpful in our areas of expertise, not necessarily going, up, you know, not necessarily overbilling or, or creating massive expenses for our clients, but at the same time, saving them, you know, saving them a lot of headspace, saving them, you know, having to go out and, and, and let's say perhaps hire a full-time um, lawyer. Uh, which, you know, in the New York or Bay Area or, or L.A. or whatever is going to be, you know, even a junior in-house counsel is going to probably run you a salary in the, in the high 100s. And then 
on top of that, uh, right. you, know, you have all your employer-related expenses. So you, know, you quickly get to a couple hundred thousand dollars salary of just trying to hire a full-time junior lawyer in-house. So that's not necessarily a great solution for a lot of companies. And um, you know, as I was alluding to before, paying top dollar for more routine work doesn't really make sense. So there's clearly a void there, and um, and and I think we're doing a great job of filling it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, switching gears here, you're servicing a lot of tech companies, obviously, across a a wide range of different industries. What challenges do you think GCs are currently facing across the board and and how would you navigate them in lieu of like the last couple of months and and how that's really affected, you know, sort of the ecosystem? Yeah, so there's... um a lot of lot of COVID nineteen related challenges out there, and as everyone who's running a business knows, there's numerous sorts of agreements and and leases and and all sorts of engagements that uh, were entered into and now need to be unwound or need to be renegotiated because of the, the changing landscape. So um, you kind of have your your kind of cleanup duty, so to speak. Uh, based on kind of where we are with the pandemic and where we think we're going with it. So I think every, every client of mine, and I'm sure, you know, any, any, every company in the world basically is, has been thinking hard and long about various issues related to their, their business and how to kind of make the adjustments they need. On top of that, when you're, you know, when you're in-house counsel and you're a small team or one person, you're also having to potentially manage, um, you know, other kind of risks or downside scenarios to your business. So you got to figure out, you know, how to potentially tap into government loans or how to, you know, ensure a a safe work environment for your employees once they return to the office. Um, And of course, you have to, you know, proactively think about all those issues, analyze them, you know, with, with, uh, with your outside counsel, and of course, be able to then distill and communicate that information to your internal team. Because when I was a GC, you know, every every GC knows your you know your your business side of your team, your CEO are often going to want to push you know going to want to push every you know every button they can to try to get the business back and running. So you have to obviously navigate the the needs of the business again, as always, with you know with this rapidly changing landscape. And it's it's obviously not easy because there's no there's no set path, there's no defined path. Right. There's obviously tremendous liability looming how how that liability might you know go play out in the future who knows but you know just thinking about the issue of returning to the workplace i mean if all of a sudden you know your company tells you next week we want you to come back into the office uh, what if they're not taking the right precautions what if even if they did take the right precautions you still get sick right uh what if you decide you don't want to go in the office are they able to fire you from that uh from the job based on that you know there's these these host of liabilities that there's simply no guidance on I and mean, we have a dysfunctional government right now not not to get political about it, <laughs> we i think we're all aware <laughs> we have a dysfunctional government and there's simply no guidance for for lawyers out there uh and so we're maybe all just kind of grinning our teeth and and, and bearing it and hoping that you know hoping that any such downside scenarios don't play out, but I think the, the hardest part right now for any lawyers is living with that uncertainty, right? Because as lawyers, we like to try to reduce uncertainty as much as possible. And unfortunately, with with a, a new situation and, and zero 
guidance from, you know, any legislative body, <laughs> basically, there's not a whole lot that lawyers can go on. Uh, and so some of my clients, you know, they're, you know, they'll, they'll um, take advantage of larger law firms offering free, free seminars and talks. And obviously that's, that's advisable, especially if it's, you know, made, avail- made easily available to you. Um, and then that's where you'll get a lot more specific, you know, specific experts kind of addressing specific uh, issues uh, in this new circumstance. But even with that, I, I don't know that that would give me a whole lot of comfort as outside counsel for the same reasons I was saying earlier. You're kind of, you're getting this advice from law firms that's going to be often geared towards, you know, a conservative mindset and not necessarily living with the realities that you might be working at a company that has 12 months of runway, of cash runway left. You have a, a CEO who's breathing down your neck to get, you know, to get people back in the office. And now, you know, you have to try to design a, a plan to execute on that. And of course, that's just one, one example I'm kind of drawing on, but there are any number of similar examples there. And so it's, it's definitely a scary time. And, and, I, and no, no, unfortunately, no great answers right now. Yeah. But, you know, if, again, kind of riffing on your point before about where, where perhaps lawyers like us could help. It's, you know, for, for me, it hasn't been necessarily in, in answering these sorts of specific questions for clients. Um, because again, you know, I'd be a bit out of my depth too. But it's, you know, being a bit of a sounding board to kind of talk through issues kind of like I was just doing uh, just doing a bit earlier, but also to help manage the, you know, incredible other workload that that is out there. So I think having a trusted lawyer kind of on call, you know, like, like myself, for my clients has been very beneficial because now they can spend their time learning about, you know, PPP loans and learning about, you know, work from home uh policy uh, issues and, and all of that and not necessarily have to be spending, you know, half their day on day-to-day contracts that can, you know, hopefully be managed um, by someone like myself. So yeah. and I think that's the, that's kind of the, the best use so far is just having a person available who's, who's there, who's trusted, who knows your company, knows the type of agreements they're working with. And then in these kind of moments of crisis, you can start offloading more and more varied uh, work to them, and allowing you, as the you know, as the, the the point person within the company, to do you know to do all the diligence and do all the hard work and heavy lifting to to answer these difficult questions. For sure, yeah, and we're seeing it quite often now, where a lot of people are being utilized on law trades to free up time for GCs to you know handle super high. Yeah, that was always one of my, you know, even well before the pandemic was a kind of a selling point to, to clients. Mm-hmm. Was how I wanted them to view me. They all had specific ideas, as you know, with what types of agreements or what kind of work they were looking for in a specific engagement. But, you know, very quickly on, I, I always want to kind of establish that there is that kind of relationship and trust. And while I can't necessarily handle every type of matter that might come across, you know, there are, uh, you know, a number of different areas that can be helpful. And having that kind of as a resource in your back pocket, as we're seeing now, is incredibly valuable. Because, of course, you can you can try to adjust on the fly and, you know, that'll take a little bit of a time. But kind of having it in place, I think, is, is you know, it's both comforting and helps the business continue to kind of keep on chugging along. Right, right. And, you know, with that being said, too, there's obviously 
tens of thousands of lawyers being laid off. I think the number that I saw most recently was like 65,000. And obviously they all come from a lot of different practice areas, some big firms, some small firms, uh, some are working in-house. What advice do you have for them? Because I know there's a lot of those people listening. Yeah, um, I guess, you know, no, no profound advice, but, you know, keep your, keep your head down and your spirits high is probably the, uh, kind of most, uh, the most I can offer. I right. think, um, you know, like I was just saying, and with regards to clients and the current situation, I obviously don't have a crystal ball here with how things are going to play out. Uh, you know, I'm confident that once a vaccine is widely available, things will more or less normalize. But unfortunately, as I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I think the, the vaccine might be a year plus away. So, I think for, for lawyers maybe who were at least hadn't maybe considered working remotely before, I would say, you know, give it a shot. Um, it might not, it might not have the prestige of the, the law firm attached to it and it might not be as, um, you know, as exciting, uh, perhaps as being the in-house counsel of it. That's where you came from, but it's, but in a lot of ways, it has the best of both worlds uh, to it. Um, right. And it can very much be the way you make of it. So I'll just kind of elaborate on that on that quickly. But I think it's a bit of the best of both worlds because you're, you know, in-house counsel for a company, it's, it's great because you get to really dive in deep with your company, with, you know, the, the members of the team who you interact with closely, either on the legal side or just throughout the whole business. You, you feel a part of your, you know, you're growing uh, something. And if it's a startup, you're growing something from scratch. And it's super exciting. You're creating some new, some new kind of technology. You're you're trying to change the world. You have you know, um, obviously you know, upside of going public and, and nice equity options and all and all that too. So you know, there's a lot of great aspects of, of working in house. And obviously, there's a lot of you know, great aspects of, of of sticking with a larger law firm. I mean, it's a it's a great place to kind of hone a practice, but. Yeah, I think with kind of working remotely like this, you you get the bit of the benefit of both because the the downside I think when you're going in house is you know you're very much live or die with the the success um, or failure of that company. Right. Uh, on top of that, you know you're going to have restrictions on your budget that could get frustrating. You're going to have executives you know who are making unreasonable demands of you, and you're going to be thrust into situations you know, as the legal counsel that are not fun situations. I mean, anyone living in the last five years or 10 years or whatever, you know, you can, you can guess the type of situations you're talking about. There, there are things that are going to pop up from time to time within a company that, you know, as a, as a normal person, you don't necessarily want to be presiding over. Uh, but nonetheless, as a, as a you know, GC in particular, uh, you're going to be you're, you're, the, you're the person to deal with it, and on the flip side, with the with the big law, you know, you're just not going to ever get that same experience of, of feeling as part of the team, as, as knowing the company and the business intimately as you would when you're in house. So, I think as the kind of remote counsel, you get the benefit of being able to really get to know your clients well, get to understand their businesses, get to work with a you know hopefully a, a large number of people within them, and, and to of course keep those relationships uh, hopefully ongoing for for years. Uh, but at the same time, you're not necessarily as as tied up with, you know, all the dramas and trials and tribulations that, you know, any small growing company is going to experience, whether it's around fundraising or around some 
some business issue or around some, you know, random lawsuit that pops out of nowhere. It's just, you know, there's a whole host of issues um, that any company individual is going to go through. And I, and I, I kind of enjoy now having a bit of distance from those sort of issues where right. I can kind of work on those sets of, you know, the sets of contracts and agreements that I think are most interesting that are adding value to the business. You know, I can be a sounding board for, for the clients, you know, and, and talk through some things with them. But at the same time, there's a, there's a nice, nice healthy distance from uh, some of the dramas that depending on your personality type as a lawyer, you, you might not necessarily uh, want to deal with all the time. And so that's, you know, that's the advice, I guess, then would just be kind of open-minded to, you know, if you hadn't considered working remotely before, to uh, how it can actually be quite a beneficial thing, quite a best of both worlds thing. Obviously, we're all working from home now anyway, so that shouldn't, uh, shouldn't factor in much uh, to the equation. And, um, you know, and hopefully you can get to a point, you know, like myself, where fairly quickly you're building up a stable of clients that, you know, are high quality, that you enjoy working with, that have interesting work, and that you can continue to kind of maintain and grow, grow your practice. Um, because, like, you know, like, you're, like yourselves, you know, a year ago when I was first chatting with, you know, Ashish and those guys uh, at Law Trades, you know, I had like, very few of my own clients. I was just kind of starting out with the idea of, of practicing uh, uh, in a solo way. And so I was impressed with their ability to both kind of attract, you know, those early clients uh, and some of you know, quite high kind of stature and reputation. And then obviously with, you know, with the ongoing relationships, we've been very excited by the way they've all kind of played out. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, slight transition here because I know mm-hmm. you're working with clients that are in the VC space and, you know, you've done that type of work in the past. How do you think the current crisis changes the landscape for a lot of high growth tech companies in general that are, you know, going out there and fundraising now? Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, you, you mentioned one of the challenges, obviously, is, is if you're a private company relying on private sources of funding, yeah, <laughs> your, your guess is good as mine as where that market is going. Now, of course, if you're a revenue generating business and you can present, you know, both a stable business and a high growth potential, I don't doubt you're going to find sources of of funding, even in this environment. The the terms might be a little less beneficial, but, you know, if you're, if you're a strong, stable business, I think you're probably okay. But of course, there's always going to be a large number of businesses that are either just starting out, that are in an R&D phase of their technology, um, or just plodding along for one reason or the other. And those are the ones I think that are going to have the most trouble because if, if private funding, you know, if we go from a period five years ago where, you know, places like Silicon Valley, but, you know, really all around the country was, was flush with, with private capital. And not just from this country, of course, and the, the vast sources of wealth within the U.S., but a lot of it coming from Europe and from China. China, of course, has its own, has its own issues with uh, investing now created by the Trump administration. And so that kind of, you know, cut off a huge source of funding um, a year or two ago. From a lot of lot of U.S. based private companies, right, and um, and now with the double whammy of the of the pandemic and how investors are you know likely to be adjusting their their uh, mindsets, you know that'll that'll certainly have some impact. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, I was uh, as GC, I'd um, been intimately involved with the with the fundraising side of the business, so helped kind of manage several rounds uh, for our company, um, raising over hundred million dollars. 
from a variety of sources. And so I, I had a lot of experience uh, talking to investors, going through the motions, uh, even leading some, some you know, number of meetings and pitches with investors. And I know the low success rate that that often entails, especially when you're early on, when you're right. kind of a series A or series B phase, you're going to, you're going to talk to a hundred investors and you're going to get one or two that are kind of interested in investing. And those ratios aren't necessarily going to adjust much. So I think like all, anyone who's seeking money kind of just obviously have to continue kind of pushing on and then try to try to find those sources of capital for your business. But you know, I think um, right now with, with the landscape where it is, where you know, even Warren Buffett can't find a company to invest in, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be tough sliding ahead. And so I think if you're within a company that's you know, in that situation where you're in a, you know, a year or two of kind of cash runway and you are expecting to go you know, in the next 12 months to raise around a capital, I think uh, now's the time to have those difficult discussions around how to cut costs and how to cut costs dramatically. Um, because I think any expectation around funding should, unless you have, you know, firm commitments from existing investors, you know, any expectations that new money is going to flow into your business should kind of be, you know, thrown out the window for now. Right. Unfortunately. Right. Um, yeah. So again, you know, cutting cutting costs, you know, getting getting rid of those expensive law firm bills, that's certainly one way to cut costs without hopefully hurting your business at all. Uh, similarly, in other areas of kind of GNA, same deal, but you know, at the same time too, that means laying people off and you know, trying to secure those government loans to to help pay for salaries and just you know anything you can do to kind of get get a hold of of needed capital or to save that capital. Because we are we are in a rainy day, right? It's uh, this is this is the rainy day that that people talk about and that very few actually plan for. And fortunately, yeah, I don't I don't see private capital just coming back in a big way until until things start to normalize. Yeah, crazy times, man, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has all been really good, Jordan, and I uh, really enjoyed this interview. How could people get in touch with you if they want to connect after hearing this? Sure. Well, if you're interested in potential engagement, obviously you can connect uh, through the Law Trades guys. Uh, you can also uh, reach me on my email or LinkedIn, for that matter. Um, sure. We thought enough we can provide a, a link or something there. Yeah. Happy to chat. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks again for doing this. Yeah, no pleasure. Have a great rest of your week.